He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. There are real forces aiming to capture your attention, your affection, and your allegiance. You probably know this about your attention. You feel the nagging pull of the attention-sucking uh, vampire in your pocket or purse. You know how hard it is to pay attention. You know how quickly you get sidetracked or distracted with the buzz on your phone or even worse, uh, the phantom buzz in your phone. Any other like smartwatch users? I'm not wearing mine today, but anybody else when you're not wearing a smartwatch feel a buzz on your arm? You know how easy it is to watch TV, scroll on Instagram, be talking to a friend, and also not really be that enticed by any of it. You know how easy it is to find yourself caring about things that you once used to not care about, like why you're not also on vacation right now, or why you don't have what that person has, or why all of a sudden you want Birkenstock Bostons and you didn't used to want those. I since have gotten Birkenstock Bostons and they're great. You know that there are things in your life that you find yourself even committed to, allegiant to. Maybe you wouldn't word it that way, maybe you don't want to feel that way, but you are loyal to these things, loyal to checking your phone first thing in the morning checking your emails. As much as you would like to not care about work that much, or you don't think you do, there's a part of you that feels this tug. Today's message is about these types of things, bringing into the light the forces that aim for your attention, your affection, and your allegiance. Today's message is about the domain of darkness in the kingdom of God. And simply put, what I want is for you to recognize that there are real forces with real power aiming to capture your attention, your affection, and allegiance. So, simply put, if you feel like it's a struggle to do what God wants for you to do, it is. It's actually a good sign that you're probably heading in the right direction. And what I want you to realize more, even that there are real forces out there, is that I want you to realize that Jesus is far more powerful than any of them. We're not talking about two equal opposite forces of good and evil going against each other. That's not what we're talking about. We're talking about Jesus who rose from the dead and took what the enemy meant to use for evil and bring public shame and used it to publicly shame the ones who were trying to shame him. Culture in the West is presently shifting in regards to this, but for a number of us in the West, in Western society, we are unaware of the spiritual realities that are at play. And we operate in a false dichotomy where we have divorced the spiritual from the material. Uh, I say this is shifting because generally speaking, people are more spiritually open and spiritually curious. Uh, particularly younger generations, we have generally and rightly recognized that there is spiritual reality beyond what we can see with actual spiritual power. Uh, depending on your life story, this may be something you are familiar with. Maybe you grew up elsewhere in the world, maybe you grew up in a more Pentecostal or charismatic tradition, or maybe you have experienced or seen some things that don't totally fit into your neat earthly paradigm. One of my first major introductions into the spiritual world uh, was through dreams. I've had very vivid, vivid dreams uh, since I was a little kid. Um, strong nightmares, I mean, Anna can tell you of like, in the middle of the night worried about me because I'm over there just, <laughs> I think pretty stressful. 
um, from what I hear. <laughs> and dreams for a long time, uh, throughout history, really, generally until about the Enlightenment, this is not a sermon about dreams, but they were considered to be a way in which the spiritual realm interacted with us. Um, this was true in Christianity, Judaism, Islam. Uh, I heard one professor refer to dreams as God's forgotten language. This changed around the Enlightenment and other things. Um, but I've experienced God speak to me through dreams, and I've also encountered some pretty dark things uh, through dreams. Uh, when I was in high school, I was a senior in high school, my family was living in uh, Guatemala at the time, and I was walking through a really dark and heavy time, walking through a lot of depression and struggling with various sin in my life. And I remember um, one night I woke up uh, in the middle of the night and I couldn't speak or move my body. And I saw a dark figure hovering over the end of my bed. And as I'm saying that, I'm getting an indication that maybe some of you have felt something similar. I didn't have a framework for that. Um, and I don't think I really talked to anybody about it because it was pretty scary and freaky. But for a long time, uh, I would, I mean, even I think when I came back from college, I would go into that room and I would feel a darkness in that space. Uh, I've since come to learn that there's something known as sleep paralysis. If you literally, if you Google sleep paralysis, as I did last night to like just double check, that's what it was called. You will see a image of a dark figure hovering over someone. Was this biological or spiritual? I can't promise anything one way or the other, but I can just tell you what I've experienced. And I've had others too where I've encountered something. I've walked into places and felt a heaviness on me. I've landed in a city and felt a dark presence upon me. I remember Carly and I, um, we traveled uh, somewhere um, for a conference and we went to a place separately and both of us separately had an experience of just a dark heaviness upon us in that space. And I talked to someone who was from that city, lived there for a long time about that place, and he's like, yeah, there are spiritual realities and powers at play in there. I've also experienced beautiful things. Um, I remember uh, when I was in East Africa in college, I was working with a uh, nonprofit there, and as I mentioned, I get vivid dreams, and one night I had this very vivid dream where I was in what I thought was a school, um, and I, I think there were kids there, and I could not speak. Like, I could not get a word out of my mouth, like there was something blocking, blocking like my tongue. The only thing I could say was God wins. And I don't know at this point if I woke up or if I was asleep, but I just remember praying. Praying and praying, praying boldly for God to do something. Um, and once again, I didn't come from a tradition that had like a concept for all these type of things. This is just what I was experiencing. And so uh, fast forward, I don't know if it was a couple days or a week or two later, um, we went and we visited this church in another community and God brought this picture of my dream back to my mind of God wins. Um, and if you've ever, uh, I don't know if it was just the churches I spent time with in East Africa, but some of the churches I went, went to, often as part of their service, they would say, at least to our team, like, does anyone feel a need or prompting to share something to also preach a message today? Not doing that to you today, no worries. Um, that was before I really preached like this. I was actually, yeah, that was a little nerve wracking, but I felt the Lord bring that back up to me. I want you to say God wins. I want you to get up there and do that. I didn't know what I was supposed to say or preach or whatever, but I just knew I was supposed to get up and do that. Um, so I got up there, and I don't remember all that I said other than God wins. He's more powerful. All the meantime, I remember uh, the wind was beating on this, like, I think it had a tin roof, this, this church. And one of the words for the Spirit, like the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures, is ruach or pneuma, which also can mean wind. And so the wind was, like, beating on this building this whole time. So I do this. I think I've done my part. Then my friend Jay... Uh, comes up and says, I, Trey, can you lead us in singing this song? I said, man, okay, 
okay, yeah, sure, didn't plan on that. He's like, I feel like we're supposed to pray over people for healing. And I was like, I did not know. I mean, I believe that could happen, but I've not really done that before. Little did I know, uh, Jay, during the service, when I was processing all this with God, I'm like, do I go and I say something or not? Jay had had a prompting that he was just supposed to go run. So he ran out, he ran and found a tree and just like sat under the tree. And the Lord brought, brought back up to him this like vision that he had had of like praying over someone for healing um, with this other person on our team. And we split up as a team, like people went to different places. But today, those two people were together, Kenny and Jay. Um, he thought it was going to happen at a different time, but the Lord brought that up. Pray for them now. So he's like, all right, we're going to pray over people for healing. So people started coming up and lining up. Um, and if you've ever experienced stuff like this and you didn't grow up in a tradition like this, um, I know some of you are probably thinking, I would like to experience it. So you know where I was feeling. I was like, I do not know what is happening. And so we were praying over this uh, one, one lady. And I remember I made eye contact with, I think it was Kimmy, um, as this lady started to fall down. And start like speaking, like babbling. And I did not know what was going on. In fact, I was rather freaked out. I was like, is she demon possessed? Like, this is unfamiliar territory to me. Um, so we were talking about it and processing it with some of the African leaders. And um, they said, no, she was speaking in tongues. That's what she was doing. And I was like, okay, um, do you see that a lot? Like, do you see, you know, do you see a lot of demon possessions? Like, what the, what's this like? So fast forward that day, we walked to go spend time with this man named Ola CPI who was a uh, Maasai man. Um, and one of the traditions with Maasai warriors, it's a little bit older, is that um, in order to become a man, you would kill a lion with a spear. But uh, he had not done that. He had killed a cheetah with a spear, which is pretty intimidating to sit down with someone who has done that. So this man had two wives and 20 kids. Uh, and we are sitting there. His son had come to faith in Jesus. Um, he did not have uh, a faith in Jesus. And we were just talking with him for a while. Um, and we went separately from him for a moment. And we prayed in the power of Jesus that he would give his life to the Lord. Um, and I kid you not, I went out. This is not going to sound relevant, but it was relevant. Um, I kid you not, I went out into the bush to use the bathroom. And I came back. And by the time I came back, two kids on his property had given their lives to Jesus. Uh, we started sharing with this man about the good news about Jesus through an interpreter, obviously. And he was like, you know... Something to the extent of, I think that is true, but that would cost me a lot to give up all of my traditions and other things. There's an elder in his community. It meant a lot. Come to find out, about a year later, this man gave his life to Jesus. I can tell you a number of other stories um, about how I experienced the Lord move in powerful ways. And this is not a dog on the church tradition I grew up in. Uh, but the church tradition I grew up in uh, taught me a lot about the Bible and about the Holy Scriptures. And I'm really thankful for that. But in some ways, the Holy Trinity was God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Scriptures, and not God the Holy Spirit. Uh, ironically, in some ways, it was actually through study of Scriptures and through experience that the Lord really opened my eyes to see in the power of Jesus. And actually, it was in that church, and then again, when I was in East Africa um, with this organization I was with, that we read a book called Forgotten God by Francis Chan that just walks through Scripture. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? And through that, I increasingly became open to the Holy Spirit working. And increasingly, today, I am convinced that what we need is not a church that is just filled with more intellect, but that is filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. 
I'm not meaning this is a um, indictment on any local businesses or businesses or whatever. I'm not. I'm not that type of preacher, like trying to fear monger or anything. But like, if you go to Target or if you go to Books a Million or whatever, um, nowadays you will see a range of like spiritual material that is out there. Uh, you'll see stuff maybe about uh, witchcraft, things of the occult, other things. Once again, they're just putting out what sells. But I say that to say. They're putting out what sells, indicating people are interested because they recognize that there is a spiritual reality and spiritual power beyond what we can see. So why then would we invite people to come to church and experience a church that is devoid of any power? This is not two opposite and equal forces, but the Holy Spirit of God is the same spirit that rose Jesus from the dead and is alive in us today. And as Jesus said to his followers, in greater works than these will you do. Acts 1.8, and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. We worship one who the demons recognize and shudder in front of. They tremble before him. We worship one who has the power over death. There's power in the name of Jesus. And this language in Colossians that we just read is remarkably triumphant. It's rooted in scripture. It really is pointing back to the Exodus narrative where God set, set the Israelite people free from slavery in Egypt. It's a beautiful narrative of freedom. It tells of a God who doesn't only set people free from the captivity, but sets them free for something else. This isn't language, furthermore, simply about what happens when you die, or about just going to heaven. This is language about now and then. And sometimes uh, we reduce the message of the good news of Jesus to something like this. Jesus is the Son of God. He died on the cross for your sins, and he rose again on the third day. If you trust in him, you'll go to heaven one day. But this picture is missing a lot. I'm not against this. I think there's a beautiful message in this. I came to faith in this. But the gospel message is a beautiful message not just for you and God, but for the world. Of God's plan for all of us now and then. His plan is not ultimately about getting people out of the world. His plan is for the world. Has anyone ever thought it's kind of ironic that we say, for God so loved the world, but then it seems like we just talk about not the world and just getting out of the world? Like, sometimes our faith is relegated to something only pertaining to when we die, which it has that. But from my understanding, that is not the only conception of biblical authors, nor of Jesus. I mean, think about the famous prayer that Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Why would he teach his disciples to pray that if the goal was for us to leave earth and then go to heaven? Wouldn't he say, get me out of earth, your kingdom come and take me with you. <laughs> but that's not what he says. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. There's a ton of language around the kingdom in the Bible. And if you're like me and you grew up um, in, a, in a tradition where the gospel message was mainly just like... Um, which it is this, but it's more than this, just about like sin and justification and like spending eternity with God. Sometimes we miss out on the centrality of the kingdom of God language that is like written throughout the scriptures. Jesus began his ministry preaching, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. He said things like, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I mention all these things about the kingdom of God, not that you would remember all of it, but but rather that, as C.S. Lewis talked about, when people come to believe this, it's not necessarily that we fully understand it because we can't, 
but because once you get that straight, you can understand all sorts of other things. So what is God's kingdom? Simply, God's kingdom is the rule and reign of God manifested in Jesus that will be consummated when Jesus returns. God's kingdom takes place whenever God's will, his rule, and reign are enacted. You go into a number of reasons why this is hard, hard for us, particularly in the West, to understand, but if you think about like the U.S.'s history, we started with like an overthrowing of a king, and I'm not saying that was, I'm, I'm here for it in this context, but we don't have this like framework for kingdom language and kingdom being associated with something good. Arthur Glasser said the kingdom, he's talking about the kingdom both being now and in the future. He said it's both presence and promise, both within and beyond history, both God's gift and the believer's task. We work for it as we wait for it. I know this is all very like, um, I've been studying this kingdom of God language for several years and still it's like this big, massive framework shift. The kingdom of God is already, meaning it's here now, and it is not yet. It is not yet fully arrived. Uh, John Thompson, in his book, Deliverance, he talked about like God's kingdom being demonstrated in Jesus' ministry whenever someone was healed or a demon-possessed person was delivered, that something important was occurring, that Jesus was demonstrating his kingdom rule. He said these were momentary glimpses into the coming future where there would no longer be such destructive evidence of the kingdom of darkness. God's kingdom was challenging, defeating, and eventually eclipsing the kingdom that had dominated earth and would continue to have its way for a while. Every power of darkness, including death, was shown to be defeatable. Now, he said, every time there's a genuine obedience or imitation of Christ among Christians, like loving the poor, welcoming sinners, forgiving others, you could add like doing justice, walking humbly with your God, loving mercy, we are seeing evidence of the kingdom of God. They're small acts of rebellion. And so, I mean, I don't know all y'all's tradition and what you grew up in or how many of you grew up in church or didn't grow up in church, but sometimes there was this like even distinction between like the proclamation of the good news of the gospel or like evangelizing and also like doing justice work, standing up against systemic injustice. For the gospel conception, I don't think that's actually a dichotomy. They actually are together. The message of the kingdom of God pertains not just to you and God, but to the world. That there's a new king in town, and his way is one of love, of righteousness, of justice, of peace, of mercy. This language is central. So a couple things about God's kingdom. God's kingdom does not depend on human activity. So you'll notice with my personal language, and not everybody agrees with this, um, but I do not tend to use the language of building God's kingdom. I don't think that's what we do. I tend to use enact. You could say we serve God's kingdom, we proclaim his kingdom, we align ourselves with his kingdom. Secondly, God's kingdom originates with God and draws its character from God. Now, unfortunately, as you probably know from just world history, people have taken the name of God and utilized it in vain to serve their own purposes, claiming it's the kingdom of God when it's actually their kingdom. The kingdom of God does not originate with a person, it originates with Jesus. So even if someone masquerades it as holy, classic example would be issues of like colonialization and like all these terrible ways that people utilize power in the name of Jesus that are not the way or the kingdom of God. Are you with me? Third, God's kingdom invites and demands response. You see, God's kingdom is not from this world, but it is for this world. 
And it is a different kind of kingdom based on a different kind of power. So that's a little bit about this kingdom of God language. For more about it, um, I encourage you to check out the Bible Project. Or, um, there's a really great, uh, relatively small book by one of my favorite New Testament theologians uh, called Simply Good News. Um, it's by N.T. Wright. He um, has others that are more dense than that, but I found immense value in that book, Simply Good News. And he dives into this kingdom of God language. And for me, it's helped make sense of a lot of stuff even in like not diving into all this today, but like in the Old Testament, you know how there's all this like holy war type language that you're like, what do I do with this? The kingdom of God language and like opposing spiritual powers helps make sense of that um, in a way that um, kind of unlocks a framework of things that once used to not seem like good news and makes them actually feel and see, seem like good news. Um, yeah, um, and as a simple point with that, um, I wasn't planning on saying this, but if you think about like the Jews, the Jewish people and like Israelite story, like typically in the scriptures, they were people who were oppressed. They weren't like coming from uh, the position of most of us uh, in the West, and it's particularly people in my camp, like a straight white guy, um, as the people who typically have had power. They were coming as those who were oppressed, marginalized, hurt, abandoned, overlooked, captured, enslaved. So you'd want good news that somebody set you free. And done away with those powers that are hurting you and enslaving you. Are you tracking with me? Um, and so when we read it, we often bring in our modern kind of understanding of it, but we forget this is referring to people who are walking through something different than a number of us are walking through. So that's a little bit about this language. And in Colossians, here we see the kingdom of God's beloved son, which lets us know it's a kingdom where love reigns. Where justice reigns, where Jesus is king and not you and not me, but we are invited to participate in God's kingdom. We also see this language about the domain of darkness. So what does that entail? I'm guessing you probably didn't anticipate rolling into church today and that I would be talking about the domain of darkness. Simply, as John Thompson put, put it in his book, Deliverance, the kingdom of darkness is under siege and is not happy about it. There are around 300 references to the demonic in scripture using a variety of terms. Um, in the Gospel of John, Satan is called the prince of this world, which this word is the highest official in a city or a region in the Greco-Roman world. And the enthronement of Christ dethrones the enemy, which is demonstrated on the cross. N.T. Wright says that um, what looked like his defeat was more like his coronation, like the crown of thorns actually becomes a symbol of hope. The cross meant to bring shame and defeat Put him to death actually becomes the symbol of life. Beautiful, powerful, it's a kingdom of reversal. John Thompson wrote, um, concerning this, the crucial battle has been won at the cross and the eventual victory is assured. But in the meantime, the battle is real. In other words, for us that follow Jesus, it's kind of like the war's victory is like already done, like we know who wins, we know the end. But in the meantime, there are still battles going on. And so once again, I'm here to tell you, if you're struggling, Makes sense. It's good. Things have not been made all right yet. C.S. Lewis uh, points out, uh, the writer C.S. Lewis, that we make two equally dangerous mistakes when it comes to the devil um, and his forces. The first is to ignore him, pretend that he doesn't exist. And the second um, is to become so fascinated with evil to the point of becoming drawn in by the reality of its power. 
John Thompson in his book talked about how when we don't actually acknowledge the power of these opposing spiritual forces, it actually can lead people into becoming fascinated by the power that's available in other places. What we see in regard to uh, enemies of the soul in the Bible and then also in church history, what could be referred to as like ancient enemies of the soul, the world, the flesh, the devil. Uh, a person named John Mark Homer has a great book called Live No Lies on that. Um, John Thompson, uh, in his book, calls these the unholy trinity of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And here's how we describe each. The world refers to human systems that function in an ungodly way. Um, so if I'm going to pause there, um, the Bible has conceptions of there not only being individual wrongdoing, but systemic injustice. Opposing kingdoms, opposing powers, things that are inflicting damage and harm upon other people. So a message that say that justice doesn't matter or like systemic injustice isn't a problem, I think misses out on something very key to understanding the scriptures. That systemic injustice is actually a problem rooted in evil and darkness. And that as followers of Jesus, we're called to participate in fighting against opposing kingdoms. Are you with me? Um, not to get on my little soapbox there. Um, flesh, he says, refers to our sin-infected human nature. This is what probably often in your traditions you talk about with sin, like this individual thing with you and God. Um, and then he describes the devil as the chief fallen angel, a sentient being who fell and corrupted himself before the beginning of time. He summarizes it like this. You always have the world in its ungodly system. The flesh expressed an individual and corporate wrestling with sin in its internal and external manifestations. And then the kingdom of darkness, adding this, uh, adding its own push to destroy all that God has made. Simply put, again, there are very real forces out there to capture your attention, your affection, and your allegiance. And I'm saying all these things because I want you to be aware. There's a war going on for your soul. And you feel this, right? Has anyone, I mean, this is not, what we do with our bodies matters in this conceptions with um, the soul and how we take care of our whole self. But like, whenever you try to change a habit, like a, to a good habit, do you notice how hard it feels? What if there's like, the enemy is not just you. What if there's actually like real power behind something else that's keeping you from becoming who God has made you to be? And this was the norm in earlier part of church history. Um, Athanasius, who lived from 295 to 373, was one of the most famous leaders in that time period, described uh, the desert fathers, who were people who would go out into the desert to be with God, commune with God, um, develop spiritual practices, they would devote their lives to prayer. Listen to how he would describe um, their life, and I'm quoting here from John Thompson. He described their life to a great extent as a continual daily battle with the demonic. These were people that went and lived their life like in isolation in the desert. But this is in line with what we see in scripture, Ephesians 6, 12. For we are not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, but against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world, and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. You're not just fighting you. And there are very real forces that want to keep you from becoming who you were made to be and from following after Jesus. I'd argue that perhaps even the resistance that you feel of like giving everything over to Jesus is evidence of this like real struggle, this real battle. Um, this is fascinating too. John Thompson talked about how by the second century, um, baptism and ex exorcism were actually like joined together. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? Kind of caught me off guard. 
when I first read that a couple years ago. Um, because most, if not all, new Christians were converting from pagan religions, worshiping. Um, sometimes we have kind of a, C.S. Lewis referred to it as like a form of chronological snobbery. So we think that people like in days past or even of different faith traditions are just like worshiping a wall. It's like real power, real beings. Now that might be, some of y'all might be like, Trey, this is not what I expect today. This is a little different than what I was hoping. But I'm here, so I can't leave this little small room. <laughs> but this was the Norman church history. And by the end of the third century, not only were all Christians baptized, John Thompson wrote, they had also formally renounced the devil in that act of baptism. Once again, I know some of this stuff may be catching you off guard, like, Trey, this is not what I anticipated coming to church this morning. But I'm hoping for some of you, it's helping give like acknowledgement to the struggle that you face. And maybe even to say that weird dream that you had, that you've not known what to do with, you're not crazy. What I wish I knew. It's like a senior in high school. I'm trying to tell you it makes sense that you're in a struggle. But what I really want to tell you is that God hasn't just offered to set you free from this, from the domain of darkness, or from bondage, this language of Colossians is triumphant, very much rooted in Exodus imagery, that he has set you free for his kingdom. So a key question becomes, how did we end up here? Where like the spiritual and material are the kingdom of heaven and earth seem like not to overlap. Where the gospel or good news of Jesus was split or mainly focused on what happens when we die. N.T. Wright refers to this as split-level thinking, or what I might call upstairs-downstairs thinking. In essence, where God is upstairs in heaven, and I am downstairs on earth. And the goal of my life, in essence, is to leave downstairs and go upstairs. So, just let you in on, I mean, on my like middle school, probably even high school self, and my thoughts on things like creation care and how that's shifted since then. I used to think, if we're just going to heaven when we die, why does it matter what we do with the earth? Isn't it just going to be destroyed anyways? What's the point? That's upstairs, downstairs thinking. Uh, we can see this even, uh, N.T. Wright talks about, by the way, we think of the term supernatural. Now, uh, by nature, uh, we tend to think of supernatural as like something that exists upstairs, momentarily coming into the downstairs, but it doesn't really have business being down here. But in ages past, supernatural didn't used to mean that. It actually was just a way of drawing our attention to the reality that our present reality is multifaceted, multidimensional. So how did we get here? Uh, a lot can be traced back to a movement known as the Enlightenment, which is the subject for a lot more conversation. I have a lot of uh, beef with the Enlightenment in some ways, but um, in the 18th, this was in the 18th century, and as N.T. Wright says, for all sorts of reasons, partly scientific, Partly political, but particularly philosophical, we in essence began thinking of God concerning the spiritual and us concerning the worldly pieces. So, if you've ever wondered, um, if you've ever wondered why some Christians are like so in opposition to science, have you ever thought that before? Um, it's not that that's only a newer thing, but like there were a lot of really solid followers of Jesus earlier who were like really influential in science and argued there are now too. Um, some of this you can trace back to the Enlightenment, where you say that all that matters is really the spiritual. And so as a response to those that were moving more towards ration, um, irrationality and intellect and um, focusing on the material, um, they would say, no, we're only going to focus in on the spiritual. 
Um, and on the flip side, then you had others who would kind of lock the supernatural out um, and only focus in on the material. And so you notice that somewhat in different church traditions even with how they emphasize one or the other. But for the Bible, all creation, all of it, belongs to God, and God's intent is to, and I quote, flood it with his love and justice as the waters cover the sea. So when we make salvation only about me and God and not about good news or gospel for the world, we miss a beautiful piece of it, that it is for you and God, but it's not just for you and God. N.T. Wright says there's perhaps two extremes here. One would be the secularist who lives downstairs and locks the door at the bottom, and the fundamentalist who lives upstairs and shouts, telling people to come up. But the gospel is good news that God came down. He was never divorced from creation, that Jesus came to earth and dwelt amongst us. And what we see even in his ministry, like when he would go out and proclaim the good news of the gospel, and when he would heal people of disease and cast out demons, these things like forgiveness, healing, uh, demons being cast out were all like together. And what you would see when someone was like healed of disease or a demon cast out typically was that they were reconciled to God. They were able to come back more into who they were created to be and they were also reconciled into community with other people. They were once ostracized and now welcomed back in. These healings were like a full restoration. So in essence, God's kingdom has come, is coming, and will one day come fully. And that what looked like God's defeat on the cross was actually a public shaming of his enemies. It was more like a coronation. You are set free if you follow Jesus from sin and set free for life with God. This means that if we follow after Jesus, it doesn't just have implications for when we die. It means that it matters now. Um, there was a Russian mystic named uh, Rasputin. Are you familiar with him at all? Um, best known as the friend of the last emperor of Russia. Um, and he likely belonged to, or was heavily influenced by a certain sect um, kind of mysticism that basically believed, how do you experience God's presence? Well, it's through sinning and forgiveness. So if we want to experience God's presence, well, then I better sin a lot and repent a lot. Don't be Rasputin and be disputin what God has called you to do. <laughs> that was terrible, I know. Um, it reminds me of Romans, I think it's Romans 6. Um, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound? By no means. You have been set free. So don't keep on living like you still belong to the domain of darkness. Allow your life through the power of the Holy Spirit to be transformed into a person of love. That's where you belong. Not to be someone who's upstairs yelling at people to come down, coming to come up there with you but to be a person who's motivated by self-sacrificial love. You have an inheritance of light. I'm gonna invite Carly and Tucker to come back up as I, as I read this and offer these prayer prompts for us. Second Timothy says it like this, for God has not given us a spirit of fear and timidity, but of power, love, and self-discipline. Romans 8, 11 says, the spirit of God who raised Jesus from the dead lives in you. And just as God raised Christ Jesus from the dead, he will give life to your mortal bodies by the same spirit living within you. God has given us a spirit for those that follow Jesus of power, love, and self-discipline. As I was praying and thinking about this message, I just, I just feel like there's people even here in the room today that feel devoid of power. Maybe people have stripped it from you. Wrongly. This is not the gospel message. 
Christ has power. He wants to empower you in his spirit. Since also there's people here that just struggle to feel loved. You feel unloved, you feel unlovable. Maybe it's not even that. Maybe you struggle to love someone else in your life and you feel like there's something very real that's hindering you. Maybe even know the intellect, like, I don't have to feel disempowered. I don't have to feel unloved. I know that, but I can't change what my lived reality is. And then it says, and self-discipline. And I also just get a sense that there's some of you in the room probably that really, really strongly struggle with self-discipline. Makes sense. Makes sense we struggle with all of these things. There's very real forces aiming for your attention, your affection, and your allegiance. And if you use the ancient enemies of the world, the flesh, and the devil, like, very real forces out there. So what I want to offer for you um, is as we uh, sing this next song, if any of that resonated with you and you want someone to pray over you to receive this like power from the Holy Spirit, um, or rather to even more so like live into it, to feel this spirit of power, the spirit of love and self-discipline, I would love to pray for you. Um, and I'm going to invite Sarah as well to come over here. We'll be... Um, we'll be up front. Um, and as I say that to you, I know that you will probably also feel resistance with the territory. <laughs> um, anytime I try to take a step in where God is leading me to go, I feel resistance. Um, and I don't want to hyper-spiritualize everything as John Thompson said. It's not like the devil's under every bush, but maybe like under every three. It's just, you know, it... Maybe the resistance you feel is indication that like God wants to do something in you. And what's the worst that happens? You get prayed over. You know? What if there's actually real power in the Holy Spirit? So I'm gonna, um, I'm gonna pray for us as we get ready to sing. And if any of that resonates with you at all, would love for Sarah and I to pray for you. Come Holy Spirit. God, you are here with us. The Spirit of God that holds Jesus from the dead is alive. You are with us here today. The war we face is not one of flesh and blood, but there are very real forces that want us to keep, like, keep us from your love. From loving you with all that we are and loving our neighbor is ourself. Lord, help us to recognize that and to commit to follow after you with all that we are because you are worthy of all attention, all affection, all allegiance forever and ever. Amen. Transform us through the power of your Holy Spirit to look more like you. And God, as Sarah and I get ready to just pray over anyone who comes up, I pray that you remove any hindrance from people that's preventing them or making them feel scared about coming up. Help step into this this that is available from you. Of your presence. Yeah. God, this power doesn't rest in us, it rests in you. The one who has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins for those sins and ways that so easily entangle us, set us free. Help us run the race with endurance. Give us strength, give us power, give us the spirit of love, um, not to toot our own but to point people to you and to your love. Help us to be people who have the power to love when, it, when someone seems unlovable, to fight against systems that seem like they are like insurmountable. God, if you defeated death on the cross, surely, surely you can do away with all of the evil and malice within us. And so God, I ask that you would you empower us with your Holy Spirit, in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen.
Hey, thanks for watching the service. We pray that it blessed you and helped you grow closer to God. If you are in the Nashville area, we'd love for you to join us sometime Sundays at 5. If you're not in the Nashville area, we'd love to help you get connected with the local church if you don't already have one. But we pray that God blesses you this week and that he grows you closer in your relationship with him and with your community, and that he uses you in a powerful way to be a vessel of his good news in everywhere that you go. May God bless you.